0: This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported, independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Our last Summer Dispatch came to you on the standard starting point for summer in the United States, the solstice, June 21st, the longest day of our calendar year, when the sun is at its highest point in the sky. But today we come to you from another point of the American summer, the day after Independence Day, the 4th of July. Independence Day is either a celebratory occasion of barbecue and fireworks, or a grim reminder of the Western imperialist domination of North America. You can decide. Either way you commemorate the 246th birthday of the United States, Independence Day can stir up a lot of emotions, the pride of nationalism, the grief at indigenous lives uprooted, the joy of an adopted homeland, and the discomfort of a nation free for some, but distinctly not for others. There is possibly no day in the United States as American or as summer as July 4th, oppressively hot, yet jubilant in its frolicking. I bring you three dispatches today, each distinctly American in their separation from the soil of the United States. Hannah Lee comes to us from New York, exploring the experiences of international students returning home from college in the United States. Alan Plotz in Brooklyn learns more about a project at Princeton to catalog and document the stories of religious refugees in America. And across the Atlantic Ocean in Paris, Tommy Goulding details his own expatriate summer. Stick around, we'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day free of charge to over 250 community organizations. Including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community supported independent radio. First up, we hear from reporter Hannah Lee exploring the experiences of international students returning home from college in the United States.
1: It's summer break and college students are finally headed home. There's a lot more to the journey back than dining lavishly on home cooked meals though. For many students, including yours truly, college is the entry point into adulthood and independence. Doing your own laundry and putting yourself to bed signifies a new chapter of life. And after all that responsible or not so responsible adulting, What does the return home look like? For Audrey, an international student hailing from Vietnam, the journey away from home and back is far from simple. We sat down to talk about the ways in which she navigates home versus Princeton, New Jersey through her name.
2: My name is Audrey, but I only picked it this summer after getting into Princeton.
1: Audrey and I became friends this past spring semester but it turns out that she hadn't been going by the name Audrey until last summer. My Vietnamese name is Nguyen. So I just felt like it presented this
2: like, extra barrier to making friends, to socializing. Because like, I feel like it was so easy for my friends with English names to just say, Hey, I'm Anna. Hey, I'm Rachel. And like no questions asked because it's very obvious That's that's their name. But then whenever I say, like, I'm Wing, I would have to do that, like, explanation. It takes a toll on just, like, how you perceive yourself as well. I have never had people, like, disrespect me or, like, even if they mispronounce my name, it's not intentional, but becomes this emotional burden, like, even when people haven't done anything to you. It's it still like reminds you every day that you're very different and you have this whole
1: backstory just like behind your name. With four long years at Princeton, New Jersey approaching, Audrey decided to take matters into her own hands. You know how when people, after
2: getting into college, they would have like this bucket list of like all the things they want to do. And like changing my name, like choosing an English name for myself, is like first order of business. I'm like, I can't do with this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it took a while, but um, I chose it for myself. I put a lot of thought into choosing my name, like something that I feel represents me and like has that. You know vibe that I feel like (laughs) um, I exude but um, I feel like in my mind at that time like any like American names would work honestly like at this point (laughs) if it's a name that people can like recognize and pronounce it's good Um, um, I think at at times I felt a bit guilty about having to do that because like my Vietnamese name I love it my friends love it and they are familiar with it um, so there's this measure of guilt of like having to change your the name that like your parents lovingly gave you to something else um, yeah but then, like at Princeton, people would like know me by Audrey and it makes everything much easier. And so like now I feel like it's a very like rewarding decision, like everything makes sense. But at the moment I did feel like maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Like maybe I should like come here and represent like my authentic self, like who I am and like whoever can like appreciate that self would be very like important people in my life and like if you don't respect me then I can just like don't care about it um but yeah but having an English name or American name in general just makes everything like 10 times easier
1: names however as Audrey discovered go far beyond the basic functions of a label
2: I feel like, in a sense, they they are attached to your identity as well. Like, when I'm Audrey, I'm, like, here at Princeton. I'm very far from home. I, like, just the, the scope of experiences I am having here is so much different than my Vietnamese friends back home. So I feel like when I'm Audrey, like, there's that, space between like myself as I am now and the people that I used to hang out all the time with Um, and then when I'm wearing my Vietnamese name I would like hang out with them and like all my family members they never call me by my English name because like that'd be weird (laughs) (laughs) and the people that are closest to me still think of me as like with, with my Vietnamese name and my Vietnamese identity. And I feel like the people here who know me after I change my name only like know this part of me that I'm representing. Not that I'm not bringing my authentic self to the table, but I feel like there are a lot of like aspects of myself that coexist and I don't necessarily feel like they are mutually exclusive I don't, I don't think it's like as conflicted as i like make it out to be but like it's like on a subconscious level you always know that you have like this like entire background like cultural background that that you come from and you are not necessarily presenting them to people here
1: Audrey has an incredibly gracious outlook, which perhaps comes from her certainty on who she is, despite juggling two names.
2: I think the most important thing is like, I never blame anyone like for anything when it comes to these issues. I think it's just more of how, you know, like, culture and identities work in general it's a very complex problem and simply fixing the pronunciation wouldn't help Mm
0: -hmm.
2: yeah so i must say that like i'm in a very good place with my american name but that doesn't make me any less fond of my vietnamese background the adults in my family are particularly like receptive to the idea of me changing, like not changing, but like choosing mm-hmm. an American name. Um, they like they wouldn't call me by my by Audrey, but they would understand like the reasons okay. why I do that. But like some of my like closest oldest Vietnamese friends wouldn't like they they would. Call me Audrey just to, like, make fun of me, (laughs) yeah, of, like, how she has changed. I don't think I have changed, it's just, yeah, Um, a way
1: to, like, navigate the space a bit more easily. Here's to all of us navigating our ways through new spaces. For WPRB News and Culture, this is Hannah Lee.
3: WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. phillytenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's phillytenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone, 9 a.m. through 7 p.m., Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV Princeton, community-supported, independent radio.
0: Next, reporter Alan Plotz learns about a project at Princeton to catalog and document the stories of religious refugees in America.
4: most refugees identify as the plurality of the world's religions. Um, Some people are persecuted for their religion. For many people, religion and culture are inextricable. And where they came from, religion was like central to their lives. Um, There are so many stories. Some people convert. Some people become more uh, faithful during their journeys. Some people become less faithful. Some people arrive in the U.S. and realize they're suddenly a minority religion when that was never the case before. And and it becomes a bigger part of their identity. Some people becomes a smaller part of their identity. There's no single story to how it actually spiritually affects um, refugees. But one thing that um, a woman said once that I thought was really powerful was, unlike all of our, or almost, unlike almost all of their belongings, faith is something that they can take with them.
3: That's Catherine Clifton. She coordinates the Religion and Forced Migration Initiative at the Office of Religious Life at Princeton University. The initiative explores the impact that religion has had on the lives of refugees in the United States. WPRB sat down with Catherine to learn more about the project and hear some of these refugees' experiences in their own words through their oral history archive.
4: These interviews span the full range of refugee resettlement. So from Holocaust survivors to um, Afghan special immigrant visa holders, um, really a a 70 year overview of this complicated and very personal and local and also um, kind of politically charged process. And so in the, um, we believe we can, you know, understand and, and learn so much by listening to folks share their journeys and reflecting on their experiences resettling and integrated, uh, integrating into the US. So we wanted the archive to kind of preserve those stories as well as kind of connect stories across various migration flows. Um, religion is one point of emphasis in the interviews, but it's much larger in terms of the person's life history and uh, where they want to take the interview, what they want to say about their life.
3: Religion is just one aspect that comes up during these interviews, but its centrality in the experiences of refugees is noticeable. Take Aya's story, for example.
5: We're Muslims. Um, I would say, to me personally, I think no matter what religion you are, there are times when you doubt God because sometimes you're like, why? Why? Like, why is this happening to me and there are definitely times where i've asked like why if we're here and we're trying our best to do x y and z then why is this happening to us because you look around and you see all those people and they're living like their life and everything is fine and uh, they have the money the cars they are happy and everything is going smoothly and then you see hardworking people and they're getting dragged through hell and back. And it's like, why? Why is this happening? But at the time where you're the most vulnerable and the most alone, the only one that you can go back to is God because. That's the only being that's there for you when no one else is. So you kind of always circle back to God, God, no matter how much you, I wouldn't say doubt, but question of why things happen. And at one point I have realized that everything happens for a reason and if certain things wouldn't have happened we wouldn't be here nothing would be happening so you and what i've always like stuck by is that god gives the hardest challenges to the strongest warriors so maybe that's what it is (laughs) but god needs to stop because i'm tired (laughs)
3: Aya is a refugee from Syria whose family fled because of the civil war. She was interviewed in 2020 for the project, and her story certainly demonstrates one way that faith and religion can play a role in the refugee experience and the impact the refugee experience. For others, of course, it's different. Take Stalm's story.
6: These are mostly in mostly Greek refugees and like Catholic, Lutheran, um, more like faith-based, right? Like kind of like more, um, mm-hmm. mobilized or, you know, centered, um, religion, but also, um, you know, um, when the, it comes to locally resettling refugees, I think um, there is openness there. They are not forcing people to be Christian or, you know, take their religion, change their religion. Um, but also, you know, um, I've seen uh, using Bible as advocacy, right? Like uh, your Bible doesn't teach you to hate your neighbor or all this. So I think when it comes to fundraising and getting support, I think that has been working well. Um, I think um, that's a good positive part. Um, And then we use that constantly, right? So in other religion also, I think God doesn't say bad to anyone. um, But people, they interpret in different ways. So that's, that's how the problem is. Um, and also, you know, these refugees um, somehow affected by the religion, like the Putinese or Iraqi or Syrian. Um, they're Christians or their other religion. If you see in Burma, they, the, the rulers are Bur- um, Buddhist, and some of the refugee groups like Rohingyas are uh, Muslim, right? Muslim, Not all Rohingyas, but they're Muslim Burmese, they're Rohingya Muslim Burmese. So, all this, um, you know, and they are affected affected by that. Um, but these reservum agencies when they got here, I think they provide that in a non um discriminatory way, like not basing the religion or not implementing religion uh but in a different way. So I think um I think the religion from the organizer perspective is there, but I haven't seen that, you know, implemented or forcefully implemented that here. And and uh, you know, I think there's a huge influence from the religion in America still. So these organizations, they get support from these groups, church members and, and also there are, uh, you know, um, churches who, what like those community came and established churches and they are also helping refugees now and like maybe ethnic, ethnic religious group or, you know, from, from their perspective. So, um, I think, you know, I have that experience myself like being traumatized from religion and um, that interest has been away. but there are so many groups and communities. They are, you know, that we have, we have seen a lot of mosques and other, other faith, um, temples, um, they have been taking on to the next level. Sam,
3: so, um, who is from Bhutan hits on another key aspect of the way that religion and refugees um, intersect in America. In this case, it's the structure of refugee resettlement in the United States itself. Catherine Clifton explains more.
4: Refugee resettlement is done by nine uh, organizations, nine national resettlement agencies, six of which are faith-based. And historically, refugee resettlement after the Second World War was um, created by faith-based organizations that wanted to resettle refugees coming from their own religious traditions that began to open up a decade or two later. And then in 1980, the Refugee Resettlement Act was passed by Congress and turned that um, uh, kind of fully religious process or or, um, fully coordinated by religious organizations into a a national um, initiative, which would be funded by the government. And it would be this private-private partnership between religious and secular groups. and um, that's continued to to this day, and so even though these inter- even though the the process of resettling refugees is um, mostly done by faith based organizations because of the establishment clause, the separation of church and state, refugees and the people who are resettling them are not really supposed to kind of discuss religion. Religion's not supposed to play a role for good reason, um, in terms of like not wanting to proselytize, not wanting to to convert people, or so forth. But it also does sometimes leave this gap of not being able to kind of connect on that point. Many of the people who work for faith-based organizations are themselves of faith.
3: There are around 170 different interviews within the archive, each with a different experience. For World Refugee Day on June 20th, some of them were shared here on WPRB. But in addition to sharing these stories with the world, Catherine is careful to center the voices of interviewees, or narrators, as she puts it taking steps to make them feel comfortable recognizing the trauma they have experienced.
4: We want this to feel like it's on their terms as much as possible. Um, they can refuse to answer a question. They can pause or end. They should feel in control of the conversation and that they're really telling their story on their own terms. Um, and we just try to drill that in both for our sake as the interviewer and for for the narrator's sake um, to not feel like they have to answer a certain way or and get caught up in um, whatever it might be power or um, other other things that might kind of uh, crop up to to make them answer in a less uh, kind of a less comfortable setting
3: to help bring these voices and experiences to more spaces and to further the educational impact the project has also worked on creating a learning resource
4: the third material the third uh, uh tab on our website is learning materials which is mostly for teachers many of whom are deservedly taking a break right now and so we're still building up um, our promotional materials for the kind of educators who we've been working with and other schools that we want to reach out to middle schools high schools and really just any anyone who runs an education program related to refugees that wants to use refugees words in their um, in their own voices with our oral histories to Teach about refugees. Um, so mostly we've been working with high schools, but we're also starting to work with nonprofits that are doing education, uh, places of worship, um, senior centers, just other, other mostly nonprofits that are, um, yeah, wanting to uh, hear refugees in their own words.
3: Take for example Joe, whose story is shared in a lesson plan developed by Kate Reed and Kenji Cataldo. What
5: was it like to come here?
7: So you I'm not really sure how like it really works but cuz I was really like young I was like around 6 so like there's a process to it I think there's a way you have to wait very when I was younger it felt like you know years so before coming here you had to go to a camp and the camp that I was like um like to be put in was um Camp Tumhin or something like that I think that's what they call it and we were stationed there for like um three months which was like not that long if you think about it but as like a kid's age like mindset that felt like years you know I thought it was like years and years but when I actually asked as I grew grew, grew up I asked my grandma how long we were really there was only for about three months and when while you're there you know you um they had a temple they had you know like churches too people were you know teaching bible studies um, there's other kids and there's actually like, um, locals who actually lives there, which is kind of, it's kind of scary. Cause like, it looks like a, a lawless place, kind of. Mm. And, um, you know, we get food rations, like you know, every morning you get, um, there's trucks that comes with water and they give you like beans and rice for food. And sometimes we don't have water, we would go to the river and, um, We'll boil the water, you know, so all, like, the germs are dead and soil settles down. And that's how we get, like, extra water and stuff. Yeah, that's that's what I can remember. And after being there for three months, then, you know, you get the process of, like, um, getting your shots and all the stuff before actually arriving to America.
3: Joe is from Burma, now Myanmar, and lived in a refugee camp in Thailand before coming to the United States. His story is part of a broader social studies curriculum where students listen to his story alongside two others and consider the role listening versus reading along on a transcript and what research questions his story and the others could help answer. His story is now part of teaching oral history skills and the importance of oral history to a whole new generation of young people and future scholars. College students even got to learn how to create oral histories through the project.
4: 170 interviews, probably 140 of them were conducted by Princeton undergrads. Um, They have done the lion's share of the work to making this archive happen um, and and making it as robust and diverse um, and rich as it is. So yeah, I definitely want to give full credit to them. It's about, over the past three years, um, I've trained over 80 students in oral history methods
3: Beyond the classroom after the launch of World Refugee Day, Catherine is already seeing people engage with these important stories and understand the human impact of forced migration.
4: We received uh, like thousands of website views. And on average, um, people are spending something like eight or ten minutes on the site, which is really uh, heartwarming <laughs> because that means that they're at least, you know, doing a little bit of listening or or um, you know, reading some of the materials or scrolling through the map or or whatnot they're actually being thoughtful about their um, their time on the site.
3: So be sure to check out their website and see for yourself. For those who also are looking to get involved in ways of supporting refugees in your own community, including the new wave of Ukrainians who are being resettled in the United States, you can also look at the resource map, which lists refugee-serving organizations around the country. That's on the Religion and Forced Migration Initiative of Princeton University website, along with the Oral History Archives. For WPRB, this has been Alan Pons.
8: WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community supported, independent radio.
0: And in our last story tonight, across the Atlantic Ocean in Paris, Tommy Goulding details his own expatriate summer.
8: It was around 2 p.m. when we decided to visit the Orangerie. One of Paris's smaller major art museums, it sits in the Tuileries Garden, rising above Parisian sunbathers and cyclists. Admission was free by some strange combination of our being students and it being the weekend that we didn't quite understand when communicated to us in French, but we weren't complaining. Inside, we knew we would find some of the most famous works of 19th and early 20th century Impressionism in the world. I've come to Paris for a number of reasons. For a Princeton course, yes, but I'm also here on the trail of some of the key thinkers in my personal intellectual canon. James Joyce, Honoré de Balzac, James Baldwin, and of course Walter Benjamin all lived in the city, and through their writing in some way created Paris for me. What it could mean and what might await me there when I finally made the trip. In particular, I've been given some money by Princeton to think and write about the work of Walter Benjamin, German philosopher, literary translator, art critic, and radio star, as this work relates to the city of Paris. The last decade of Benjamin's life, the 1930s, was largely spent in Paris, and his great unfinished masterpiece, The Arcades Project, was an extensive exploration of Parisian history, culture, and technology In the mid 19th century. In many ways my trip thus far had been haunted by Benjamin. Every glimpse of the underground metro lights, the carefully planned streets, the dimly lit bookstores brought some passage, some fragment of prose from his works to mind. The Orangerie was no exception. The museum was built in 1852 at the order of Napoleon III, the closest thing Benjamin's arcades project has to a supervillain. Napoleon III was a reactionary conservative emperor, brought to power in a coup which squashed the fragile Second Republic and inaugurated a new empire, characterized by decadent expenditure, violent police crackdowns, and an extensive network of Bonapartist spies which served to thwart revolutionary resistance. The Orangerie originally served to house the orange trees of the Tuileries Garden in the Parisian winter. One of the earliest greenhouses, Benjamin wrote of its glass before its time, premature iron, which in some way prefigured the giant structures of iron and glass that would define later urban topography in the 19th and 20th century. Back in the present, the Orangerie's towering glass walls make the space airy and light. It is a building uniquely suited to the housing of paintings. As the poet Apollinaire once said, painting is a remarkable art whose light is boundless. The play of reflected and refracted light across the works of Monet, Degas, Pizarro, and Renoir, painters who already delight in the dance of light and color, lends the works here a living quality, an of-the-moment vibrancy which delighted us viewers. The exception to this was Monet's famous Nymphaea, Or water lilies housed in a windowless section of the museum's interior. Stepping through the shrouded doorway, it was at first like entering an aquarium. The deep greens and blues of Monet's ponds were strangely illuminated by a mastery of brushstroke, color, and perspective that we ourselves could not understand. The white and pink lilies, often delineated by three or four brushstrokes at the most, were like something from another world, haunting yet gentle. It was strange. I had been taught by Benjamin and others to consider art as reflective of its time, lending insights into the historical moment of its creation. Yet here was something that lent meaning to the word eternal. Drawing as it did on one of the oldest relationships in all of civilization, that between a man and his garden. Monet's work seemed to transcend its 19th century origins. Impressionism was, of course, a movement that sought a new depiction of reality, in part, a response to the rise of photographic technology. Yet what was on display here was not mere technique, not exemplary of the 19th century per se. It was a work of great sadness and darkness, yet ignited with the fire of Monet's love for what he painted. We left Monet's water lilies with a great appetite for Impressionist art. The rest of the museum more than obliged. We passed Degas' leaping ballerinas in their halos of gaslight, always straining for something just out of reach. Renoir's peaches, almost sickeningly colored in overly sweet pinks, yellows, and oranges, which nonetheless managed to please. Manet's rich reds and whites in floral still lifes. But we always came back to Monet, who was to us the clear master of the group. For five, ten minutes, we stood in front of his painting of a vase of flowers with bright pinks, reds, yellows, and whites, like something out of a dessert platter. It was so clearly painted from a sense of hope and of abundance, abundance of color, beauty, and talent, and especially from a belief in the capacity of painting to represent and transform. Benjamin once wrote, It is high time the beauties of the 19th century were appreciated. On this summer day in Paris, we were glad to do just that in the Orangerie.
4: WPRB wants you to know about Mural Arts Philadelphia. Mural Arts Philadelphia, the nation's largest public art program, exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals at Grace Our City. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio.
0: And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB Studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's director, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Hannah Lee, Alan Plotz, Tommy Goulding, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. Other songs in this episode include Comply Jazz by Kevin MacLeod, Afternoon Stroll by Henry of Skalitz, and Train Loosing Man by Lobo Loco. Can't get enough of news and culture? Want to catch an episode you missed? Find us wherever you get podcasts or on our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.